This is your Field is Our Office. I'm field agronomist Jay Zilski in South Central Minnesota, and with me is field agronomist Ashley Storby, my colleague and neighbor to the east. Ashley, good morning. Good morning, Jay. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, Ashley. Uh, back fresh from a, a fishing trip up on the uh, Canadian border, and uh, you know, it's interesting, no matter uh, how hard you try to escape, you still in this digital age, you still manage to get some text messages, and it's kind of interesting. I uh, and we guess we've taught people well over the years because I got a number of text messages from farmers telling me that they had observed some firefly activity out, out on the farm. And of course, that tends to be a lot of years synchronous to when we start seeing uh, corn rootworm activity in the field. So it's probably good timing for us to uh, to have the show we do today and our, our guest as well. Oh, so that's wonderful. You know, Jay, I we don't stay up late enough to see fireflies with the ages that the kids are and how much how late it is light these days, but um, I did see cottonwood or the the cotton flying from the cottonwood trees. Um, it's been a little while now, so I, I think that correlates to rootworm hatch as well. You know, I did not know that, and we'll have to ask Potter that because you know yeah. the thing is, is that as, as an avid fisherman, one of the things that really does irritate you is if you get cottonwood cotton on your line. Sometimes it'll, it'll mess with your ability to either cast a fly or cast a lure, and such as <laughs> as well. So uh, maybe we should get on to uh, today's today's topic and and our, our guest today. And you know, Ashley, in 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 my years as an, an agronomist, um, you know. Guy can't know all the answers to all their questions. And it's always great to have a, a phone a friend uh, or a list of phone a friends. And so when it comes to uh, whether it be plant diseases or insects, uh, my phone a friend, and, and by gosh, he always answers my call, replies to my text, even fuzzy pictures of insects that I ask him to identify. It's uh, Bruce Potter, uh, who is the uh, integrated pest management specialist with the uh, Southwest uh, Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton. And we're going to discuss uh, corn rootworm along with kind of an additional insect update. Bruce, let's start by having you share your background and your role in the research you do at the university. Well, thanks, Jay. Well, I've got a master's degree from the University of Minnesota in entomology. And, and I've been at the, I spent some time uh, as a consultant uh, and spent quite a bit of time up on campus working on pest surveys. And since 1997, I've been at Southwest Research and Outreach Center uh, working on uh, pest management, uh, mostly insects, but some diseases. And every once in a while, somebody will call me about uh, a weed or herbicide question, but it's primarily insects. Um, the things I do is a lot of applied research, and we look at testing different products for efficacy, not just to compare products, but Sometimes, in the, like in the case of soybean aphids, we get a hint of resistance developing or some confirmation of that just by how uh, responses of insects are changing to those pesticides over time. And uh, so we've, I worked, uh, insects I've worked mainly on are corn rootworms, corn borers, uh, soybean aphids, and now we're working on, on uh, soybean gall midge, which is a new insect pest. Uh, the other thing that we do a little bit of is work on tracking uh, pest populations uh, with pheromone traps and insect traps, that sort of thing. So we've got a network for black cutworms and, and uh, armyworms uh, that move into the state from the south. Oh, wow. So it's a really broad spectrum of, of things that you do. And, and gosh, you know, congratulations, 25 years here at the Southwest 
Research and Outreach Center. I'm surprised they haven't run you out of town yet, but that's, you know, that's good news, bro. I think they forgot I was here, Jay. That's that's why I'm still around. Um, still, uh, you, you know, Bruce, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, before we get on to today's main topic of corn rootworm, uh, there's kind of some some other insects that uh, are on the horizon here as well. And, and most recently, I've been, been hearing of uh, armyworm activity in, in corn and in small grains. In fact, I had a, uh, a farmer yesterday call me who's uh, into strip till and cover crops, kind of curious how concerned he should be. So can you get uh, Ashley and I and, and listeners up to speed on you know, what we're seeing and um, uh, you know, who should be concerned and what they should be looking for? Well, yeah, armyworms are one of those insects that can't overwinter here, and as the temperatures warm in the south, they'll start moving, uh, moving up into the northern northern plains and all the way up into Canada. When they arri- arrive here, what they're looking for is dense grass vegetation. They like to feed on grasses primarily. Uh, one of the things that's changed over time, it used to be mainly, you know, if you had a corn problem, it was where you did had poor early season grass control and you had a lot of grassy weeds out there, they, they'd find those to lay eggs in. When you kill those off, um, they'd move over to corn. Uh, but we've got a lot more uh, rye cover crops out there and that's some of those are pretty lush in the spring. And if those are still alive and growing when those army worm moths arrive, uh, that's a really attractive site for them to lay eggs. So. Uh, same thing happens when you terminate the rye, uh, those, lar- those uh, larvae that have been feeding on the, gra- the, the rye uh, move over to corn and it can be pretty devastating, I guess. Um, fields that are most risk are stuff that was planted late and the rye was terminated late, uh, corn planted into it. If you've got uh, cereal crops, uh, we've got some reports on uh, guys that are taking rye for grain, um, lodged rye. Uh, those sorts of things. Uh, this flight, uh, the, the larvae that we're seeing right now in the southern part of the state, a lot of those are pretty much done with development, uh, but we've had uh, subsequent flights in, so uh, we're not out of the woods yet for armyworms, uh, especially in the small grains. I haven't had a whole lot of experience with armyworm, just given you know they seem to be pretty sporadic when they're when they have a, a really significant population area. But last year, um, I was able to see it at our home farm, um, armyworm take down our, our stand of alfalfa that borders our home farm just for somewhere to travel. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of alfalfa, but I was just amazed at how quickly they can take out vegetation, um, really aggressive consumers. Yeah, actually last fall, we had a different, uh, different it was actually a different species. Um, um, it's, uh, you know, what we've got this spring are two armyworm, um, fall armyworms were what came in last year, and it's pretty rare we get problems with that. They're more like mainly a southern pest, but they had really big populations in the south, and we could kind of watch subsequent generations move north. Um, pastures got, got hammered pretty bad. Corn, again, if there was uh, uh, weeds in it, uh, cover crops got, got chewed up pretty good. So. Similar damage type, two different species. Um, both of them are pretty impressive when they get going. Oh, thank you for that differentiation, Bruce. So let's look then um, at some other insects that we tend to see 
more often. Um, what do you think, based on the weather conditions that we've had, you know, parts of my area, um, specifically, we're, we're on the drought monitor now for a, a D0 um, drought designation um, on my southern area, Freeborn County. Um, the whole county is in the, on the drought monitor now. And then as we move north um, along Highway 14, we've been getting extra water. So they're not, they're not quite as dry. And then as I go a little further north, they're, they're pretty dry. Um, Good Hue, Washington County now on the, the drought monitor as well. Um, what would you expect to see for soybean aphids and, and spider mites, just given the conditions we've had? Well, uh, both both of them like it on the dry side early, and what happens is as as uh, conditions continue to deteriorate, and as soybeans get into the vegetative stage, um, we start excuse me into the reproductive stage, uh, we start to see uh, spider mite populations do a little bit better. They're going to move into into fields from uh, alfalfa or other perennial grasses that as they get mowed. Uh, so right now it's good for both of them. And, and if, if it continues to be dry, um, the soybean aphids are going to suffer and, and the, uh, spider mites will do a little bit better. Um, so we're just going to have to wait and see, um, if we get some high humidity, some heavy dews, even some light showers that might do be enough to kick off some of these enopopathic or insect killing fungi. And those usually can do a pretty good job of controlling both species. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. You know, Bruce, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. It seems like generally the last couple of years, we've had a bit of a hiatus from soybean aphids, you know, substantial soybean aphid pressure. Um, you know, any, any theories that you have that uh, it might be, uh, that you might attribute that to other than just kind of the, maybe the natural cycle of, of populations in, a, in an insect, anything in particular you think might have led to what we've seen? Sure. Well, you mentioned natural cycles and, and it's an invasive insect. And usually what happens after that things have been here for a while, uh, you know, we get more natural enemies built up. We're starting to see a lot more parasitic wasps out there, um, those sorts of things. So um, I think the other part of it is weather. And, you know, like last year uh, where it was dry, um, again, that, that wasn't good for aphids. And we've had a couple of really windy, windy springs. And I think, uh, I think they have a little bit of trouble colonizing soybeans when they're when they're bucking the wind on those small soybeans, as the plants get bigger, they've got a little more shelter. Well, you know, that's a good sign, Bruce, because I, I don't know. I don't know if I can remember a windier spring <laughs> than what we have had this year. It seems like it has been kind of horrendous. So that's, I, I guess I had never realized that and never thought it might have an impact on soybean aphids. So that's kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting, right? Really, well, right, really interesting. Right now they're out there, they're, you know, they're probably in a, in a lot of fields at real low levels. So it's not, Unfortunately, it hasn't caused a mass extinction event yet, but, uh, you know, we'll have to, hopefully, hopefully it's another mild year. Yes. And I hope so. I hope so too. I don't think too many farmers would object to not having the scallop fields for soybean aphids in the summer. Uh, you know, I think the one thing you mentioned earlier, totally different pest, but you talked about army worm and that delayed planting might put some of those later planted corn fields at risk yet from army worms. Um, you know, am I remembering this right, Bruce, is that 
Um, historically, if we have significantly later planted soybeans, that oftentimes they can be more attractive for soybean aphids than some planted in that normal time frame. Or, or am I remembering that wrong? No, you're not. It's kind of a yin and yang thing. So as those aphids come off of buckthorn, where the eggs overwinter, um, they'll go through a few generations on buckthorn, then they'll start moving over to soybeans. And when they make that uh, move to soybeans, what they tend to uh, hone in on are smaller fields, fields that are sheltered, um, and fields with, with uh, buckthorn in the area. And they're going to the fields that are early planted are going to be the most heavily infested, but as the season progresses and winged aphids develop and move around the countryside, uh, then they tend to colonize the uh, later planted soybeans. So early in the spring right now, you know, I'd maybe focus a little heavier on early planted beans. And then uh, as the season progresses towards the end, it'll be the late planted stuff that gets hurt. Hmm. Oh, that's really helpful for prioritizing scouting. Uh, well, I think we've, we've got the other insects out of the way for, for our conversation today. So I think that lets us move on to our main topic that is corn rootworm. Um, you know, our listeners have all likely seen a rootworm beetle, maybe even a rootworm larvae, and some or, or most listening have probably lost bushels to the pest. Um, but just so that we're all on the same page, Bruce, in your words, can you describe corn rootworm for us? Uh, well, it's a really significant corn pest and, and nationwide, it's, it's probably the most significant. Uh, we have, there's three species in Minnesota. There's the southern corn rootworm is, is pretty minor, so we really don't uh, need to worry about that too much. But western corn rootworms and northern corn rootworms, they have a similar life cycle. Um, they overwinter in the soil as eggs in the top few inches of the soil. In the spring, they'll... Um, they follow a degree, not only do they, you know, can you use fireflies as a guide, rough guide, but uh, there's some temperature dependent development models. They develop at a little higher temperature base than the corn, about 52 degrees. Those eggs will hatch, the larvae will look for grass roots, particularly corn, they'll infest those roots. Um, that's where the problem comes in for the corn, they'll prune those roots back and you can have uh, yield loss by lack of nutrient and water uptake or, um, you know, that root system those plants will tend to lodge. Um, the larvae pupate it's a pretty short life cycle and about the time um, you know the early start earliest corn starts silking and tasseling you'll start to see the first beetles come out. Uh, they'll mate quickly it takes about 10 days for those uh, females to develop eggs. Actually the males come out a little bit ahead of the females they try to get to the party a little bit sooner. Um, Jay remembers that from his youth, uh, but uh, uh, after that, after those eggs develop, they'll start laying eggs and, and uh, the cycle continues. One of the problems we have when it comes to adult beetle control, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later on, is if you go out there too early, uh, and, and if you're trying to control beetles, you're going to control just males, um, and if you uh, so you want to wait a little bit and, and allow, allow those eggs, females to developing eggs and get more of that uh, egg population out. Mm. See, I see, Bruce, and it's interesting, a good, good overview, good summary as far as uh, corn rootworm life cycle. You know, it, it seems like 
the last several years, we've been beginning to see a gra gradual, maybe in some cases not so gradual, <laughs> increase in, in rootworm populations. And, you know, uh, based on the season that we've had thus far and the populations observed overall in the last year, you know, you have any predictions for what we might expect to see this year and what might be unique because of some of the delays in planting we've had this year as well, Bruce. Does that, does that actually set us up to be in a worse situation? Issue with corn rootworms in, in predicting this year is what we don't know is how well uh, the eggs survived. Western corn rootworms are uh, more cold sensitive than northerns. Uh, they'll succumb to, to relatively mild or relatively uh, uh, mild temperatures in the soil. But I don't think we've done enough to knock those populations back very far this winter. Um, this late planning and, and staggered planning. Uh, one thing that's beneficial to the rootworms this spring is that it's dry. We don't have any mortality from uh, flooded soils as those larvae are trying to move to corn roots. In some years, we get that. Um, the late planted corn. Um, when larvae attack small plants um, with smaller root system, you may not have as much survival because they're crowded and they compete with each other, but that damage on those small corn plants can be a lot, a lot more significant. Uh, if you've got a big root system, more larvae survive, but then um, also you've got, uh, uh, you know, a little better root system to support the plant. And, you know, so it, if we've, if we've had good egg survival, um, the resistance issues haven't gone away. I'm expecting some problems. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting and, and actually kind of a daunting thought. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, dry in survival. And I'm thinking, what's he talking about? It was wet this spring. We had delays in planting, so on and so on. But, but that all occurred before any rootworm egg hatch. So it, it, it's interesting how, you know, we got to get our minds out of this. Oh, it's been wet. It's been wet. It's been wet. Yeah, it has been. But for the rootworm and, and when the eggs are hatched and the larval survival, um, you know, it couldn't have been better for the rootworms as far as this dry spell hitting when it did, right. as far as the uh, survival of any larva that hatched from those eggs. Well, we're doing, we're, we're doing similar to uh, last last spring, Jay, and, and that was a not a good year for corn, a good year for rootworms. Mm. So I was, I, I'm trying to find opportunities to um, see if I can float any larvae. <laughs> and so I've done a couple um, larvae floats in the last, in the last week. Um, my first one was early last week and it happened to be in a farm that was nine years, uh, continuous corn. And I didn't float a larvae. I, I didn't see any scarring. So I was really happy with that. Of course, it's traded corn with an insecticide. Um, it doesn't <clears throat> have a history of rootworm issues that, that we know of. Uh, but I figured, you know, long-term corn on corn, it was a good place to spot check and see if I could float any larvae. And I figured they'd be about the right time that I would be able to see something. And, but I, I must say it was hundred degrees and I only sampled one spot. So I might not have had a great distribution of, of sample there, but then yesterday I, I did um, do another float near Albert Lee on a long-term corn on corn field on a, um, a an untrait or just a, a double product with above ground traits, no below ground traits. 
and uh, did have insecticide on that product too. And while I wasn't able to float a larvae, the, the soil, it was, it was hard to get a good root mass or a, a good mass of soil with um, the root because we were so dry there and it was kind of lighter soil. So it, it, the soil just sloughed right off the root when I, after I did the root dig. So I know we want to preserve more of that soil around the root. Um, but then I, I did, I cleaned off the, the root and looked for larvae floating. I didn't find any larvae, any pupae. Um, but I did see some scarring on that plant, kind of a, a track, a, um, of a kind of darker tissue in a little bit of a depression, kind of a track along the root. Um, but not significant feeding by any means, but from your perspective, what, what to you is the, the value of doing a, a larvae float? And, and if you called the shots and got to tell, um, us what to do on our Minnesota corn acres, what farms would you, would you float? Or maybe, maybe you wouldn't. Okay. Well, for one thing, we're just getting to the point now where we're going to have success folding those, uh, larvae out of the roots. You know, if you look at degree days, um, sometime this week, at least at, based on soil temperatures at Lamberton, we're going to be around peak hatch or about 50% of the egg hatch. And that's about the time you can start to see larvae. Some of the early hatching larvae are going to be big enough that you can, uh, that you can, uh, recognize them. And, um, Floating larvae is, is, is a tool um, where I would think it'd be valuable is if you were curious if, um, if you were going to need to do something later in the season. We really don't have a lot of management options, uh, but if you were thinking you might have to want to try some beetle control, um, you know, get a little heads up on those fields, see what kind of... Uh, uh, pressure you've got out there. You know, beetle control is a whole nother subject that's fraught with peril, but uh, you know, it, those are the fields I would check. If you had problems in a field before, um, if you had a traded hybrid in out there and, and were worried about it, uh, maybe get a handle on, on what kind of larval damage. And it's all, at this time of year, we're all planning, everything's pretty much geared towards working on next year's problems. Um, there's not a lot you can do at this point anymore uh, to protect your corn roots, but it's knowing what's in that field and, and preventing problems in 2023. And if I, if I do you know, continue to, to do our, our spot checking and, and target, target fields that we know we have had issues on in the past and, and maybe anticipating some in-season adult beetle control, let's say I, I float five larvae off of a root. Does that mean anything to you? Does that number tell you anything? Um, well, I mean, the more per root, you, the, the bigger the, the problem is. And I think, I think really the way to evaluate what that pressure is because it occurs over time is uh, those fields that you're, you're suspecting problems, problems with uh, going back and looking at roots later in the season and doing the root ratings and then seeing how much damage was actually caused. Uh, one of the things that happens when, when rootworms, we kind of touched on it earlier, when rootworms attack a corn root, a small rooted hybrid, uh, the same number of rootworms are going to do more feeding or more damage than on a large rooted hybrid. Um, if they're attacked early in the season versus late in the season, that root damage can be quite different. Interesting. <clears throat> Interesting. 
uh, you know, uh, enough of kind of the the fun stuff as far as rootworm floats. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that I haven't attempted one yet. You know, I was thinking I was behind the game here, but you know, I was pleased to hear that you said this is the, probably anticipating this to be the peak week of uh, a rootworm hatch. So that's that's interesting. Uh, well, Jay, this is this is one of those times your procrastination probably helped you out. <laughs> yeah, we won't go into that in any more detail here, Bruce. But uh, <laughs> enough of the kidding around. You know, let, let's talk about this serious discussion about rootworm management, Bruce. Uh, uh, you know, you authored a, a Minnesota Crop News article this spring titled, Can You Manage Your Way Out of Corn Rootworm Problems? It's complicated. And so, you know, I'm not the brightest guy, so you, you got to make this less complicated. Can you break it down for our listeners? Uh, and, and, and maybe a good place to start is uh, some possible management tools and, and tactics to, uh, to try, attempt to manage our way out. Well, okay, so um, first off, the big, the big hammer, you know, if you want to, if you really want to put a herd on a rootworm population, it's crop, crop rotation. Um, Western corn rootworms in Minnesota, at least as far as we know, aren't able to survive a year without corn. The eggs hatch uh, if they're in soybeans, uh, alfalfa, some other crop besides corn, uh, they'll starve to death. Northerns are a little more tricky. We didn't talk about this earlier, but Northerns have uh, the ability, uh, probably about half the population, maybe more by now, that has extended diapause. And all that is, is the eggs Instead of hatching the year after they're laid, you know, it'll be two, maybe three years after they lay, they lay the eggs will hatch. And you can, they can get around to rotation that way. But even there, even if you've got extended diapause, you're still knocking that population back some with a, with a year of rotation. So that's the big hammer. And if you've got serious high populations and you've got, uh, uh, beetles that are resistant uh, to BT, um, that's definitely the way to go. Um, the other tools you've got are insecticide, add plant insecticides, and those be granulars, liquids, and high rate seed applied insecticides. Um, that's kind of the order that they perform. The granulars are always the best, uh, most consistent. Uh, liquids are there's some liquids that are better than others, but all of them struggle a little bit if you've got dry soil conditions. And then the seed applied insecticides, they'll do something, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not anywhere as near what a, what a good granular insecticide can do. Uh, the final uh, option you've got is um, managing beetle populations. And, you know, you've got to time that right it's a lot of intensive scouting. You have to um, be out there at least once a week for a while. And you, it's in a lot of cases because that hatch occurs over a long period of time, you're probably gonna have to treat that field more than once uh, for best, best control. Um, and then of course you realize when you're spraying insecticides out there, you're, you're pushing, uh, pushing the resistance lever in another direction. Okay. Okay. As far as uh, adult, I am a adult real sunshine, aren't I? Yeah, you you really you really are, and it, you know, well, we, we we knew that when we invited you as a guest, we we would get candor, so that we we wouldn't be blowing any sunshine anywhere. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's uh, want to ask you one question about 
um, adult management, and then I'm going to have a follow-up to that as well. But as far as adult beetle management, um, you know, it, it seems like for a lot of uh, farmers are thinking, well, this is pretty convenient um, uh, as far as why don't we just include it in the tank with our fungicide application in corn. They're, they're looking at timing the VT fungicide application in corn. We're already flying across the field. Let's throw uh, an insecticide in there and try to manage the beetles as well. Uh, your thoughts on, on that as a, as, a, as a tactic? Well, occasionally um, people are, some people are more optimistic than I, and it may work for them, but the timing usually isn't going to line up. Um, if you're putting a VT application on, it depends on the, the hybrid too, but uh, if you're putting a VT application on, a lot of times you're going to be on the early side for the rootworms. And, you know, even the best, uh, you know, foliar insecticides, the residual isn't, isn't all that long. Okay, interesting. And have you, have you had some personal experience working with uh, Stuart? I hear, you know, I hear rave reviews, but I don't know, is that marketing or is it real as far as the um, length of activity that that product offers for adult beetles? I've, I've looked at a couple studies and it looks, it looks okay. Um, I haven't tried it personally. Um, and so I can't, I'm not going to recommend it over, over another one, but um, even there I'd be, I, I, I don't know if I'd feel confident just one spray will, will be enough. You bet. You bet. So, um, you know, I think, uh, we look at, okay, this whole resistance issue. We really haven't even talked about that so much as far as corn rootworm resistance. Um, you know, what, you know, what, what should we, what should we be, be looking for as far as to determine whether or not there's resistance and then, you know, have you had any, you know, there's a lot of buzz out there about some of the, the RNAi products that that's, it's the next generation for trying to manage corn rootworm and, and Pioneer here will have, have our own product. It'll, it'll, we anticipate to be in the field, you know, potentially next year, a product called Vorseed. But, um, you know, let, let's talk about, you know, management and as far as resistance and traits and, um, and also, you know, what some of those options are when we know we actually have resistance in a field. Well, okay, the um, issue, resistance in the field, let's attack that one first. And if you've got, uh, if you've got a, a BT hybrid out there, um, they're all pyramided right now. There's no single trait hybrids uh, sold anymore because of resistance. Uh, but if, you, if you've got a BT hybrid out there and you've got... Uh, your first sign is you're, you're going to see quite a few beetles out there. The second sign is you're going to look at those root systems. And if you've got a half a node gone, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, as far as the resistance itself, uh, the first trade out there was yield guard. Um, there's been subsequent traits out there. Uh, yield guards, the cry 3 bb one and there's a couple other proteins that are CRY3B as well. And there's cross resistance in a lot of these rootworm populations between those CRY3 traits. The other one is, uh, is the Herculex trait. And that's the one that's kind of holding the whole system together right now as far as resistance. But now we've, we're picking up more and more fields where, where that's failing. Um, so when it comes to the new traits, um, the RNEI needs 
because it's slow acting. Um, they have to feed for a while and use up, uh, use up a protein before they die. And if you don't have an effective BT ahead of that, uh, you can have quite a bit of root damage before that takes hold. One of the things I'm worried about, Jay, is, um, you know, people are going to want to put those in their worst fields where they already have resistance and they have high beetle populations. And that's really, uh, I'm really concerned about that, uh, pushing the resistance to the next trait uh, pretty rapidly. So it's a good, it's going to be a good tool, but it's not, uh, it's just like the other traits, it's, it, it can fail. You really got me feeling good, uh, Bruce. It's probably a little bit early for me to head to the bar and have a have a few rounds here, but it's never too early, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ashley, I think you're itching to ask Bruce a question as well here. Yes. So you discussed the timing of a of a foliar insecticide to control adult beetles and the importance of that being being timed well, so that you're you're making that application when you have pregnant females or gravid females present versus if we pull the trigger too early, we're, we're taking down the male population and that's not as, as effective as, as hitting those gravid females. So can you give us examples? Do, do you have examples of farms that are doing a really good job monitoring their corn worm population, um, making those really timely applications and, and then can you describe to us the practice by which you would monitor a rootworm adult beetle population? Um, well, I know there's, there's a lot of guys that are uh, people, farmers themselves or consultants um, monitoring rootworm beetles. They tend to do that in higher risk situations, which, which makes perfect sense. Um, there's a couple of ways to do it. One is to go out there and, and look at the walk in the field. Um, and look for beetles. Um, you can go and look at whole plant counts. So if you're getting uh, three quarters of a beetle per plant and it's second year corn or a beetle per plant and it's, it's uh, continuous corn, uh, those are kind of triggers that you could have a problem next year. I don't think I would be necessarily worried about putting a foliar treatment on at that point. Um, the other way to monitor those rootworm populations is with uh, sticky traps. Um, and looking, looking at, uh, you know, cumulative captures uh, over, over a week, and you do that during the summer. So there's guys that do that, and, you know, if you look at about, you, you typically, uh, if, you, if you start looking for those beetles about silking time, that gives enough time for mating, and, and you'll see some, uh, you know, some beetles out there, and then give that about you want to wait about 10 days and wait till about 10% of those females that you see out there are gravid, they'll be, the abdomens will be swollen out. That's when you would time the first application. And then you have to keep uh, scouting and, uh, you know, maybe every week to 10 days and make sure that you don't have enough emergence back to, to uh, uh, require another application. Okay. And, and you had mentioned, and I'm sorry, I'm probably jumping the gun on this, um, but it, it came to my mind, you had mentioned that, that you have a, a trapping protocol um, when we talked earlier that, that you deploy throughout the state where, where you, you collect the, the corn rootworm adult beetle trap counts. Is that right? Sure. We've been doing this for a few years and, and uh, the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council is helping support this with uh, some checkoff funds. 
And uh, it's been, uh, we've been doing it for a few years now. The, you know, if Jay's not depressed already, one of the things we did notice is that if we're looking at these uh, sticky crap catchers in continuous corn or continuous corn fields with and without BT, um, there's enough of this resistance out there that there's really not a lot of difference in, in uh, Western corn from populations between the traded and non-traded fields. So um, there's some pretty high levels of resistance out there. Um, so what we, what we do is we've got, uh, we can supply traps. All we ask is people share their data with us. We can give you a little Excel spreadsheet that'll calculate populations for you. Um, and then at the end of the year, we kind of look through there and look at rotated versus non-rotated BT versus non-BT um, and, and kind of look at, see if there's any differences by geography. One of the things we do, and we've known this, but this has given us some numbers, is as you go further north, you see more um, northern corn rootworms. We're seeing northern corn rootworms build up through the state and we're starting to get more reports of extended diapause with northern corn rootworms. Westerns, the more years you've got the field in corn, the populations get higher. So um, we're looking for cooperators. We've got traps. If anybody's interested, they can let me know. Perfect. Jay, you are especially talented at, at summarizing um, good, dense technical conversations. So would you like to take a stab at, at your key points? I will try to make an attempt at key points. Usually I try to boil it down to three, but I don't think I uh, can do that today and do the topic justice. So I think the first thing is, as we look at this year, you know, most, most important in everybody's mind is, okay, what to expect now, what to expect this summer. And I think one of the things that I, I caught from, from Bruce was that, um, you know, it, it's hard to predict what winter survival was of, of corn rootworm. Uh, we did have some particularly uh, cold stretches there and where there wasn't a lot of snow cover and, and that, that might have impacted potentially a Western corn rootworm survival. So, you know, that's a potential uh, good thing. So it's kind of a roller coaster ride when you listen to Potter because, you know, you think, well, maybe that's kind of a good thing. And then, then the next thing he says is that, you know, dry conditions um, like we're experiencing now because this is kind of the peak period for corn rootworm hatch, uh, actually tends to favor corn rootworm survival. So now, so now I'm kind of taken down again, thinking about, oh, geez, now that's that's not good. Um, but so those are two things with regards to survival and in, in, in risk. Uh, you know, then it comes down to, okay, managing the, the pest. And, you know, he said, you know, the big hammer, the big hammer is crop rotation. If at all possible, you know, making that, that crop rotation, we know it's particularly effective in managing Western corn rootworm. Here where we're at in, in Southern Minnesota, um, even where we have diapausing uh, Northern corn rootworms, that, that rotation can still be an effective tool, although not quite as effective as it is with the, uh, the Western uh, corn rootworms. Uh, and, and then I, I think it's, you know, uh, management tools being um, traded, uh, traded products. Again, we need to be aware of potential for resistance developing to, to those products where they've been used a prolonged period of time. And then if you were going to give those products uh, a boost, uh, additional boost would be the use of a, a granular insecticide and kind of the relative ranking being, you know, granulars being the, the top of the heap. Uh, liquids down a notch from there, and then the uh, seed applied treatment. So, um, you know, those are the key key takeaways 
um, I had as far as Bruce's conversation. And the only thing I want to add, I always got to add something here, is just, you know, as, as people are looking at um, adult beetle populations and, and either scouting poten to potentially uh, manage their, their risk of, of some silk clipping or just knowing their risk for the future, uh, if they happen to have a very late planted field this year, those emerging adult beetles are always attracted to the freshest sources of pollen and silk. So if we happen to have, you know, a field in the neighborhood where you were particularly delayed, you know, watch that field close, maybe not so much as far as rootworm feeding on the roofs, but as far as migration of uh, the adult beetles. And I think if I remember right, Bruce, in the past, some of the first places you saw resistance showing up uh, back what uh, what ten year over ten years ago now I believe were some situations that were long term corn on corn and prone to particularly late planting. Am I remembering that correct? Um, yep. Well, long term corn. It's back in two thousand nine we saw our first fields, and that was not only a few years after the traits were released, so it didn't take them very long. Um, but long term corn and. One of the things that was happening was guys that would have a longer maturing hybrid and would be silking either plated land planted later or silking later because of maturity um, would draw additional beetles into the field. Uh, you can see that with volunteer corn, even if you guys don't get it controlled. And there's a lot of volunteer corn, particularly out west here where we had that big wind event. Um, if that persists in the field too long, the larvae can survive and pupate. And if it, and if it persists late enough, uh, that always is silking, lading, and pollinating later and pulls beetles into the field. So it could really uh, interfere with your crop rotation. Interesting, Bruce. Leave, leave it to me to then summarize and then extend the, uh, the conversation <laughs> here. But I, I do think it's a relevant point uh, for this year. So uh, so Ashley? Yeah. Well, before you close out the show, Jay, um, I'd like to thank our guest, Bruce Potter. This has been a really interesting discussion. Um, quick plug for, we, we mentioned Bruce's tenure at um, the University of Minnesota. And um, you know that, that brings, your, your experience brings such fantastic um, information and, and you're such a wonderful resource for those of us in the field. So really appreciate you, Bruce. And with that, you mentioned 25 years. Um, I have to call out that this is the summer that Jay is celebrating 30 years with Pioneer. So another fantastic resource. And one of my favorite things is when I, I get to run into farmers that work with Jay and they, um, they speak very highly of you, Jay. So um, just an honor to get to work with, with both of you in that capacity. So um, Bruce, wondering if there's any last comments that you would like to make on our topic before we close out today's show. No, I think, uh, well, uh, I used to be an optimist until I started working with corn rootworms, but, uh, I think, I think, uh, it's important that people keep an eye on those populations and always be plant with rootworms, always be planning a year ahead. Um, it, it's just the best way to keep things under control. Uh, if you do see resistance uh, in that field, get on it, get a co contact your seed people so they can follow up. And uh, I think uh, it's been real enjoyable. I've, I've, I've uh, had a good time here. Hopefully I didn't, uh, didn't cause any uh, major disruptions in the, in the universe here with my comments. 
And, well, Bruce, uh, I, I thank you, you know, and, and, and I think I think you're lying as far as being an optimist because, okay, so you brought negative news about corn rootworm. If we would have been talking about soybean cyst nematode, you would have been talking about seeing shifts in populations of soybean cyst nematode. If we'd been talking about soybean aphids, you would have been talking about resistance to the pyrethroids. So I really think that's kind of your job is to just kind of, you, you, I don't know, just dump cold water on the topic, it seems like to me. So, well, you know, I think, uh, I think I, I keep the alcohol industry in business. So just. <laughs> well, you know, Bruce, on that note, I think it's probably time to close out this episode 14 of your field is our office. Uh, listeners, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at SeedZeek. And you can find Ashley on Twitter as well at Ashley Storby. And Bruce, how can listeners find you on Twitter or elsewhere? Uh, emails bpotter at umn.edu. Uh, Twitter is swmnpest. And uh, also website, I've got a newsletter uh, that people can uh, view or sign up for. If you go to the Southwest Research and Outreach Center and look under pest management, uh, there's some information there. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you uh, again. Uh, Bruce and folks, you can join Ashley and me in our next episode as we dis uh, discuss uh, fungicides and uh, uh, foliar disease management in corn. And uh, we hope to have our former colleague, uh, Brian Buck, on the show to, to talk about fungicides in corn. So thank you all for listening. This has been episode 14 of Your Field is Our Office. Until next time, be safe and stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you.